from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling in The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, March 11th. Today, why the coronavirus seems to be sparing kids, Biden's big win on Big Tuesday, and the doubts of a Bernie bro. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock, and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. On Wednesday, the World Health Organization confirmed what epidemiologists have been saying for weeks. The coronavirus is a global pandemic. Although this is the first coronavirus to be labeled as pandemic, at the same time, we believe that it will be the first also to be able to be contained or controlled. We should double down and we should be more aggressive. That's what we're saying. At this point, there are more than 120,000 coronavirus cases worldwide. And in the U.S., the number of cases has doubled in a matter of days, more than 1,000 as of late Tuesday. The numbers have been going up. The numbers continue to go up. The numbers are going up unabated. Uh, And we do need a special uh, public health strategy for New Rochelle. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced a one-mile containment area around the suburb of New Rochelle. Hello, Katie. Hi, Governor. How are you? Good. How are we doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for taking the time. I know you've obviously been very, very busy today. A little bit. Yep. (laughs) Governor Cuomo jumped on a call with reporter Katie Zesma to talk through how he decided to establish a containment area. We have 24 cases in New York City. We have 104 in New Rochelle. Uh, So it is almost a unique phenomenon in the nation. You know, and and why this one one mile radius area rather than kind of closing schools and in public gatherings in the entire city? Cuomo said that he's had to take a sweeping approach to what's becoming an increasingly complex problem. See, I think what's different here is the templates, the normal governmental templates a school district, a town, a county, they don't apply here. It's a public health crisis. So a public health crisis doesn't follow governmental or school district boundaries. Governors and mayors and school district superintendents around the country are making tough decisions on what needs to be done. And one thing that has complicated those decisions is new science on who is the most vulnerable and who isn't. One of the most mysterious things about this virus is how kids just don't seem affected by it. Either they're not getting infected by it at, at the same rate as adults, or they get infected and the symptoms are just extremely mild. It does almost nothing to kids, and yet it kills the elderly at a high fatality rate. I'm William One. I'm a national health reporter for The Washington Post.
When you say it does almost nothing to kids, that, that even kids who are exposed to coronavirus, that they're not becoming infected, they're not suffering from it? There's two thoughts about this. One is that they're resistant to infection. They're getting infected at much lower rates. The other is that they're infected, but the symptoms are so mild that they're not showing up in a lot of these studies and tests. And is that unusual for respiratory diseases or things that are are similar to coronavirus? It's unusual for a lot of these respiratory diseases. Take the flu, for example. The most vulnerable populations are the very young and very old. Uh, one scientist described it as a U-shaped curve. You have young on one side because their immune systems, especially before five, they're just not developed enough to have resistance. The elderly, because your immune system weakens as you age. What's missing in this with this virus is just one side of the U completely, and it's a really confounding mystery. Do scientists have any theories as to why kids just seem to be unaffected? There's one very commonly floated theory, which is that kids are exposed to these four mild coronaviruses more than other people. Coronaviruses that were already existing before right. this new these coronavirus. Are coronaviruses that cause a common cold, so we don't even think about them that much anymore. But there's other theories, too. Some people think this has to do with environmental causes, possibly. You know, we accumulate more and more pollution and pollution damage in our lungs as we age. It could be something to do with chronic kind of conditions we accumulate as we age, like hypertension, diabetes. Very rarely do you come across a seven-year-old with hypertension, for example. And so hypertension could affect how you respond to being exposed to coronavirus. Yeah, any of these things could be, yeah. Damage to your lungs, even if it's slighter as you get older, could be one thing. One very significant clue, though, is that it likely, at least partly, has to do with immune system. Because I came across this one, I talked to one scientist who was fascinating. There's a cousin of this current coronavirus, the SARS virus, from a very um, scary outbreak in 2002. So what he's been doing is he's been taking mice in his laboratory and dropping little droplets of SARS onto their noses. With the baby mice, the virus kind of just bounces off them, even if they become infected, very mild symptoms. In the older mice, the elderly mice, it like ravages their system. And as they've been trying to study the bodies of these mice afterwards, what they're finding, it's not so much the infection, it's the immune response to the infection. So it's, their immune systems are just dysregulated. And so the response, he compared it to sending a SWAT team to a house for a misdemeanor. The immune system response overreaction is what's killing these elderly mice. But that doesn't happen for young people. That overreaction of the immune system mm -hmm. just doesn't happen for children. It doesn't. It suggests it has to do with the immune system, but they still don't have answers as to what's happening with these different coronaviruses. With SARS, very few children were hurt by that. MERS is another coronavirus caused by camels in the Middle East that was deadly to people, but no children kind of harmed by that. And the fact that children are, are relatively unharmed from these kinds of viruses, is that just like a quirky thing that scientists find curious? Or is there something bigger that, that if scientists can figure out the cause of that, could have the key to something like an antivirus? Well, they're working on two tracks. The very short-term track, they're very focused on antiviral drugs and vaccinations, finding a, a working vaccine for it. Long-term, though, to understand both this coronavirus, SARS, MERS, the ones that came before, and the ones that are going to come, a lot of scientists think this is very key to understanding. Because if you can understand why children are kind of relatively 
immune from this virus, maybe you can understand what is causing people to die, you know, in, in the elderly at quite high numbers, and what we can do to prevent it. But at the same time, even though kids don't seem to be really affected by coronavirus, we're seeing schools closed in a lot of places. I mean, all schools are closed in Italy. So why are kids being kept from school if they seem to be relatively immune? There's a few different thoughts. So one is, we don't know if children are infected at equal rates. And there's some new studies showing kind of pointing in that direction. They're just equally infected by it and can transmit it. So that's one reason we shouldn't be having schools because they can become vectors. They just spread throughout families, throughout your community. That even if they don't appear sick, that the, the right. virus is hiding inside them or hiding on them. And yeah. then if they infect a parent or, or potentially a grandparent, that that could be really bad. Yeah. And I was talking to one epidemiologist who brought up this interesting thought too, is that, you know, we often think of closing schools to protect the kids. In this case, we may be closing schools to protect adults because the kids could be perfectly fine, but you have staff, principals, teachers, janitors, and then kind of elderly that they're attached to in their community who could be harmed by this. But one thing about closing schools a lot of people are worried about is if you don't have kids gathering in schools, where do you send them? Are they gathering in malls instead and playgrounds? So it has to be a little thought out. And also the economic impact of that, you know, not everyone can afford to just take the day off and watch their kids at at home. So the low-income families and kids who get nutrition from school, that's going to be a really big concern. So what are precautions that parents and teachers should take for their children to prevent infection? I feel a little guilty answering this because I've been trying to get my kids to wash their hands. And my (laughs) five-year-old just... He like runs his hands over the water and says, washed hands. And like, part of me is like, okay, you did a good job. I'm going to encourage you. On the other, I'm I'm thinking of all the epidemiologists I've been talking to, the 20, you know, seconds, (laughs) sing happy birthday twice. And I'm like, all right, I, I really need to be a good health reporter and like sit him through. And um, anyways, yes, wash your hands. All this to say, do have your kids wash your hands. I think kind of holding your kids back from big mass gatherings is definitely a good idea. You know, cleaning surfaces, all of those social distancing messages that have been going out. But it's hard with a kid. I mean, I hung out with a five-year-old over the weekend who not only was hearing but ignoring the don't touch your face rules, but was having trouble avoiding picking his nose and then putting his his <laughs> finger in his mouth and then holding my hand with his The wiping of noses is just in my family. So my, my new idea, I'm not saying this, there's no like evidence-based research on this. This is just me and my, my new idea is peer pressure, is we have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and I'm going to have my eight-year-old make washing hands the coolest thing in the world. I'm going to give him all these articles about coronavirus. He's going to be so fascinated by the washing technique that he's going to like indoctrinate our five-year-old. That's my current idea. Just a warning to other parents, I've not tested this out with control studies or anything yet. So um, just one parent to another. We'll see how it goes. Well, William, good luck. Thanks a lot. William One is a national health reporter for The Post. It's more than a comeback, in my view, our campaign. It's a comeback for the soul of this nation. This campaign is taking off, and I believe... 
On Tuesday night, Joe Biden won Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, and Idaho. Bernie Sanders won North Dakota, and we're still waiting final results in Washington state, which is very close. Aaron Blake writes about politics for The Fix. Tuesday night was an affirmation of what we saw on Super Tuesday, which is that Joe Biden has taken over the 2020 Democratic presidential race. He has built an expanding delegate lead, and he is running up the kinds of margins in the states that are voting that suggest it will be very, very difficult for Bernie Sanders to change this race and overcome the deficits that he's seeing so far. Tonight, we are a step closer to restoring decency, dignity, and honor to the White House. That's our ultimate goal. How big was the delegate margin for Biden? Well, it was big, and it was big for a few reasons. One of the reasons was that he won the biggest state, which was Michigan. Another reason was that the margins that he ran up in the three M states, that's Michigan, Mississippi, and Missouri, were all rather large. In fact, he didn't lose a single county in any of those states. And that means he wins significant delegates in all of them. Uh, Bernie Sanders wanted to win Washington state and rack up some delegates there, but it looks like it's basically going to be about a draw. And the one state that Bernie Sanders won, which is North Dakota, is a very small delegate prize, only 14 delegates. So we've seen uh, Joe Biden now rack up a delegate lead that's at 143 delegates at last count. It's probably going to get bigger as we get more results in. It's up to Bernie Sanders to try and do something to reverse the negative momentum of his campaign right now. And what do we know about who voted for Biden and why those people are important? Well, maybe the most encouraging thing that Joe Biden saw on Tuesday was the broad coalition that voted for him, especially in those three M states. If you look at exit polls, he, of course, won big with black voters, which is something that he's been able to count upon. But it was also a situation where he won in each state with non-college white voters and with college-educated white voters. He basically won the vast majority of demographics with a few outliers there, like Latino voters. It was the kind of performance that I think Democrats will look to as being encouraging for the November general election because they want somebody who can both rally support from minority voters and also appeal to those working class white voters, especially in states like Michigan, which is huge in the Electoral College. And Joe Biden showed on Tuesday night that at least in a primary, which doesn't necessarily translate to the general election, uh, he, he showed that he built that coalition that they really want to see. I also want to talk more specifically about Black voters in particular, because it seems that that has really been the consistent problem for Sanders during this latter part of the primary, that essentially the only path to being the Democratic nominee is by winning over Black voters, especially in the South, especially older people, and that that just isn't something that the Sanders campaign seems capable of doing. Yeah, this was Bernie Sanders's maybe biggest problem in 2016. If you looked at the population of uh, black voters in states across the country, you could pretty much predict what the results of any given state would be just based upon that metric. What happened on Tuesday night was 
Uh, Bernie Sanders failed to improve upon how he fared among black voters in states like Michigan, Mississippi, and Missouri. In some cases, he regressed a little bit. It may be possible to win the Democratic nomination without doing very well among black voters. But when you suffer the kind of margins that he's suffering, and it looks to be happening consistently, just like it did in 2016, the math just becomes very difficult, given what a large portion of the Democratic electorate African-American voters comprise. So do we think that Bernie Sanders is going to drop out anytime soon? Or like, does he have any realistic path towards still being the nominee? 143 delegates is not, you know, an insurmountable deficit. But if you look at the kind of states that have voted and you kind of translate the demographics onto the rest of the country, it becomes very difficult for him to change this race unless something extremely fundamental changes about how these demographics are voting. Back in 2016, it's worth noting, he looked as though he was not going to have any hope of winning the delegate race, and he stuck around for the duration and really, I think, kind of alienated some people in the Democratic Party who wanted to move forward at that time. Donald Trump must be defeated, and I will do everything in my power to make that happen. I think it's also important to note that you know, Super Tuesday was bad for Bernie Sanders. Tuesday night was bad for Bernie Sanders. Next Tuesday might be even worse. That's because the four states that are voting are Arizona, Illinois, Florida, and Ohio. Bernie Sanders lost all of them four years ago. All of them are similar to states that have gone for Joe Biden this year. And they actually have many more delegates in those states than we saw on Tuesday night. On Sunday night, in the first one-on-one -on -one debate of this campaign, the American people will have the opportunity to see which candidate is best positioned to accomplish that goal. Thank you. All. So if Joe Biden can keep this going, if he can merely win the states that he is expected to win, we could see a much larger delegate gap coming out of that. And then the following week, we have Georgia, which, of course, is a southern state with lots of black voters, which is also a recipe for Joe Biden to win based upon everything that we've seen so far. Aaron Blake writes about politics for The Fix. Bernie Sanders' struggles in the Democratic primaries have left many of his supporters doing some soul-searching. So I spent some time with a guy who lives in Atlanta whose name is Zach McDowell. My name is Zach McDowell. I'm 23 years old. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am a tutor. Under a pseudonym, using a private account, he uh, goes online and he will mock people. He'll mock presidential candidates. He'll yell. He'll curse. And he'll do all these things that were typical of the behavior of what people would call a Bernie bro. Calling out candidates for their positions on issues or their past positions. A white young male who's very aggressive online. Probably isn't using kind language. It's probably not even using correct grammar. Maybe there are people on the left who weren't fully thinking about the consequences of what they did online and were intimidating fellow Democrats. These guys are always posting, they're always online, they're always harassing people. He prefers the term Bernard Brother. My name's Robert Samuels and I'm a national political reporter for The Washington Post. So you met this guy, Zach, in person. Was he different than how you expected him to be considering his online persona? 
I didn't fully know what to expect because a lot of people, and we know this as journalists when we see comments, that a lot of people, their online personas are just more aggressive than their real life personas. And so I was interested in kind of figuring out who he was, why he was doing what he was doing, and what it might mean to be a part of a movement that's sort of on the fringe, on the edges of conventional politics that was moving toward the mainstream. Uh, Because that will influence what you do and how you think and how you act. So what was he like? Well, Zach was a very earnest 23-year-old guy. And as soon as I started talking to him, some things started clicking just about the way he was brought up to understand politics. One of the first conversations we had was just about how he developed a political sensibility. And what he told me was... When I was in high school, I had a great teacher. Like Usually on Fridays when we had finished up everything there was to do, she would throw on clips from the Colbert Report or The Daily Show. Do we really need a march to raise awareness about global climate change? I mean, it's an... And what he saw, his first political introductions were these politicians being mocked for saying ridiculous things. Texas Republican Steve Stockman. The lead scientist at NASA said this. He said that what ended the ice age was global wobbling. Global wobbling. And that was his political introduction. It wasn't sort of like looking at a president or looking at a lawmaker and seeing them of great esteem. It was looking at a person making gaffes and being ridiculed for not being in line with things that he would support. And that sort of thinking continued to influence the rest of his politics and how it's being played. But the Colbert Report and The Daily Show existed to do was to make fun of Republicans. Like that's that was the whole premise. It was to be funny at the expense of Republicans and conservatives. He grew up in a world where when he saw politics, he saw people yelling at each other, people mocking one another. And that to him didn't seem very different from playing, you know, Fortnite or any game that would be interactive that you'd play online. It didn't seem very different from how you trash talk about your favorite baseball team or basketball team. And so that's how he practiced politics, because that's how he learned to practice politics. And so how did he take on this mantle online? Like, how did he decide that the way to best support Sanders and his candidacy was by taking on this online persona where he essentially shouts down anyone who opposes him? So a few things happen. So Bernie Sanders runs for the nomination in 2016. And then people who support Bernie Sanders start to feel that the Democratic National Party, the DNC, is actively working against him. Oh, ooh. <laughs> it was maddening. And eventually they get proof from emails that are revealed that show that the DNC was working in favor of Hillary Clinton. This makes him feel sort of nutty. Going down that rabbit hole, let alone trying to like talk to somebody about it, makes me feel like the most stereotypical conspiracy theorist. But on the other hand, yeah, the DNC was doing something. And he starts going online to find some camaraderie, to look for people 
who feel like, oh no, we're not going crazy. Something is going on against Bernie Sanders. And so he starts following these people who are sleuthing online for any shred of evidence they can find that will show that Bernie Sanders was being conspired against by larger forces in the Democratic Party. And that leads him to a bit of a rabbit hole. He finds more people like that. They're more aggressive. And they start, all of them start listening to these podcasts and joining these subreddit pages that are profane and irreverent, but they also talk about the politics that Bernie Sanders espouses. And they also start talking about larger critiques of capitalism. And McDowell gets sucked into this world. And because he's sucked into this world, he begins acting like the friends he met online. So I'm curious how Zach is feeling about his, like, Bernie bro status now, especially as Bernie Sanders is now one of the two remaining viable candidates for the Democratic nominee and going up against Joe Biden, who is, like, the ultra-moderate. And and I'm wondering if Zach is kind of rethinking the role that his kind of rhetoric online plays in offering people a choice between this ultra-moderate and someone who, to many Americans, still seems kind of fringy. Yeah, well, a few interesting things have happened. There's been more and more furor about what people like Zach McDowell are doing online. You have Bernie Sanders being questioned about it at debates. We have over 10.6 million people on Twitter. And if there are a few people who make ugly remarks, who attack trade union leaders, I disown those people. They are not part of our movement. You have one of Sanders' closest allies in the Senate, Elizabeth Warren, saying that he needs to do something to rein them in. Uh, You have people who are saying, I like Bernie Sanders, but I'm a little bit nervous that if Bernie Sanders wins, he's going to empower these people. And for some people, in the most extreme versions of that logic, to empower the people like Zach McDowell would be the same argument that they'd made for what President Trump had done with fringe movements on the right. And so for Zach McDowell, who really wants to see Bernie Sanders be president, he's beginning to ask himself some questions, which basically center around, am I going after people too hard? And what is the impact of going after people in the way that I'm going after them? Because for Zach, he often says Twitter's not real life. It's a place where you trash talk. It's a place where you have arguments. Nothing matters. Nothing matters, at least in this tangible sense. But now that there are tangible consequences, maybe it's time I start doing something differently. And so what is he doing differently? He's thinking about it. Uh, so he's the, thinking he's about, thinking about doing it. things differently. He's thinking about doing things differently. But for him to tweet impulsively is a natural impulse. And right now he's going through the process of thinking about sending the tweet before he sends the tweet. But is he still sending the tweet at the end of the day? Sometimes he is, sometimes he isn't. A few days after we talked, he sent out a tweet with Joe Biden confusing his wife and his sister because he had switched places during a victory speech with the uh, post, Joe Biden's campaign is elder abuse, something along those lines. 
for him, that's funny. It's has a political purpose, but it's just great satire. And that's the sort of thing that he wants to do, that he feels that has an ounce of levity and won't do anything terrible. It's not demeaning anyone. It's not, well, it's demeaning Joe Biden, but it's not threatening violence on a, on a private figure or anything like that. I think what's so interesting about Zach's story and the story of internet Bernie bros in general is that so much of what made Bernie Sanders' popularity in 2016 possible was the fact that people were so vociferous online, that there was this sense that the Democratic Party is not paying attention to us, so we will make them pay attention to us. And that was in part a product of like the aggressiveness of so many of his supporters. But that now that Bernie Sanders is in a more viable spot, that he is one of the last two remaining Democratic candidates for president, that that same dynamic that made him impossible to ignore in 2016 could be undermining him now. Yeah. Well, I think there are a lot of things that have changed about politics since 2016. And the big question the thing that I think is we've yet to solve as a country is how do we show support and also how do we treat each other, right? The Joe Biden campaign is less centered around policy than it is about being nice to one another, being civil with one another, because that's what Americans are. And Donald Trump, his philosophy has been, yeah, it's okay to be angry, because no one's been supporting you, and I've been supporting you. And that message resonates with people who feel like they've been shortchanged in the American experience. And so the question really is, well, how am I supposed to channel my frustration in real life and also play the game of politics? And now that the Democratic Party thinks they have one shot to defeat Donald Trump, who they feel is the most unstable and the most aggressive president that they've ever seen. They don't want to play the game, a number of them don't, that he played. They want to go back to a world in which they put sort of all that aggression back in a can. And the idea of the Bernie brother threatens that. And so for Sanders now, it's more of a liability than it was in 2016. Robert Samuels is a national political reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're seeking more coverage of the coronavirus outbreak, you should subscribe to a new coronavirus newsletter at The Post. There are breaking news updates about the public health response, as well as deep dives into the science and economics of the outbreak. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter or find a link at PostReports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.